Good day, and welcome back to Latin 3 from the Church of St. Agnes. Today we are exploring Unit 29, the new grammar and material contained therein. And as I was looking through the final units of our Latin 3 class, I am noticing that most of them uh, consist of review and summary of things that we've already had. So you'll be happy to know, and you should be encouraged to know, that you've basically covered all of the important points of grammar um, that will enable you to read um, any good liturgical Latin uh, with the aid of a dictionary. There's one more uh, very important point of grammar, uh, an alternate way to do indirect discourse, but we'll be getting into that later. Today in Unit 29, we have the introduction of some pronouns, um, a couple uh, minor uh, grammatical points in the use of the dative, and then a, a review of time, cause, and concession clauses. So if you open your books to page 254, you will see the first item there, indefinite pronouns and adjectives. Now. In the opening paragraph there in section 149, uh, Collins gives you an explanation, which um, I don't uh, prefer to follow. Um, I think he does it sort of in a backwards way. So I'm going to urge you to look at the bold-faced uh, words at the bottom of the page on, on page 254. Um, indefinite pronouns and adjectives are just what they say. They're speaking about an indefinite person or thing. So um, when we have a definite pronoun, interrogative, for instance, we ask who um, or what, we have uh, an indefinite that talks about someone or something. Um, and we also have adjectives that can modify nouns that can mean a certain thing, a certain this, a certain person, but they describe indefinite things or people. They're not speaking about a specific person or thing. Now, the two major, uh, the indefinite, uh, the major indefinite pronoun is the one you see in the boldface down about three or four uh, notches, aliquis aliquid. That's an indefinite pronoun. And uh, these indefinites are formed either by adding a prefix or a suffix to other um, pronomial or adjectival forms. So we know about quis and quid. This particular word is formed with a prefix, ali, quis, and ali, quid. And that means someone or something. Now, the ali is not at all declined, but the quis, quid part is on the back. And it's declined just like your interrogative quiz quid. And this word means someone or something. Now, the old rule that I told you several chapters ago or units ago was that after num, si, nisi, or ne, every ali fades away. So the, if the word is aliquis aliquid, that means someone or something. But if a num, si, nisi, or ne, precedes it, 
in a sentence, then the Ali drops off. So for instance, see Ali quiz if someone would actually appear in Latin as see quiz and the Ali would fade away. Now Collins in his introductory paragraph introduces this and explains it in the opposite way. But actually what's happening is we have the word aliquis, aliquid, and after it, uh, if, if in fact it is preceded by num si, ni si, ne, the ali drops off. The same for the indefinite adjective down a few more notches, aliqui, aliqua, aliquod, which means some or any. This word can modify any noun, pronoun, or whatever in number, gender, and case, just like any other adjective. But we have a book, we might say, uh, here's a book, this book, that's a particular book, but we say, uh, some book, or some books don't talk about this. That's an indefinite, right? And so that indefinite adjective will modify in number, gender, and case, the noun it's modifying. And again, we see the form aliqui, aliqua, aliquod. And following that rule, num, si, nisi, or ne, every ali fades away. So you, if, if it were si, qui, somebody or other, uh, it, would be, it would have been si, ali, qui, but that ali fades away. Notice qui, qua, quod. It is declined just like qui, que, quod, your relative pronoun or your interrogative pronoun. But notice the qua in the feminine is just qua, Q-U-A, and not Q-U-A-E. The back half of that word is the part that's declined. The ali is never changed. Okay. So you have aliquis, aliquid, the uh, interrogative, or I'm sorry, the indefinite pronoun. And you have aliqui, aliqua, aliquod, the indefinite adjective. And they function like pronouns and adjectives. And remember, after num, si, nisi, or ne, that oli will fade away and it will look like quis, quid, or qui, qui, quod, qui, qua, quod. Then at the, the last three words on the bottom of the page in boldface, we have qui, cumque, qui, cumque, quod, cumque. And that means whoever or whatever. And notice, the cumque is a suffix added as opposed to a prefix. Here we have suffix added to qui, que, quod. Only the front part of that word is declined. And it changes, it's declined just like qui, que, quod. The cumque on the end stays the same, but it's written as one word. Qui, cumque, que, cumque, quod, cumque whoever or whatever, okay? Then we have quidam, quedam, quidam. This is a pronoun. The dom suffix, D-A-M, doesn't change, only the qui, que, quid, and this is a pronoun, which means a certain one or a certain thing if it's quidam, right? So quidam, quedam, feminine, quidam. And only the front part, qui, que, quid, declines. The dom suffix at the end always stays the same. And then we have its adjectival form, which means a certain, and this will modify a noun or pronoun and so on. Q, 
quidam, quidam, quedam, quodam looks just like the pronoun above, except the neuter is quod instead of quid, and this is declined just like qui, qua, quod, and it means a certain one. Notice the dom suffix remains the same always throughout the declensional pattern. The dom does not change. So the same with qui cumque and so on. The cumque doesn't change. Only the beginning part of the word is declined. This is not a very difficult concept. With practice, I think you will understand it perfectly. Um, the important thing is just simply to remember these vocabulary words and remember the, the rule for um, uh, aliquis, aliquid, and aliqui, aliqua, aliquod, that after num, si, nisi, or ne, every ali fades away. In other words, the ali would drop off and you would be left with quis, quid, or qui, qua, quod. This is the opposite sort of way from the way Collins explains it, but this is the way I think most grammar books take it, and um, it's, it's uh, I think, an easier way to remember it. Either way you want to remember it, those are your vocabulary words. You'll see them appear in sentences, and I don't think you'll have any trouble whatsoever in identifying them and translating them when you see them. We'll get plenty of practice in the upcoming exercises. Okay, so let's take a look on page 255. Here is a new use of the dative, uh, two uses actually. Uh, as it says there, the dative may be used to express perfect, purpose or effect intended. Now this is a rather idiomatic use of the, of the dative. doesn't occur a lot in Latin, but it does occur occasionally. If you take a look at the example, I think it will make it clear. Hic odio me habet. Notice that the main verb, the main sentence would be hic me habet. This man, this one, this man, holds me. And then we have this strange date of odio. This man holds me. And the reason we call it uh, the date of a purpose is it expresses the purpose or the effect that we want in the sentence. He holds me for the purpose of hatred. It's a long way of saying, this man hates me. He, he holds me for the purpose of hatred. As you can see, it's an idiomatic expression. It doesn't make real uh, grammatical sense, except for the fact that dative remember is usually two or four. He holds me two or four hatred. He holds me for the purpose of hatred. As I say, an idiomatic expression, you won't see the date of a purpose too very often in Latin, but it will crop up here and there. And interestingly enough, following upon the dative of purpose is another use of the dative that's presented here. And I love this construction. It's called the double dative construction. And what it does is it combines a dative of purpose with a dative of reference. We've already had the dative of reference. This action occurs in reference to me or to you or to him, right? This particular construction, the double dative, which again is fairly rare, but does occur with a dative of purpose 
a dative of reference, and almost always the verb to be. When you have that combination, that recipe of verb to be with two datives, you're going to, I hope you will from now on, suspect that what we have here at work is a double dative. Now, how does this work? Well, again, it's idiomatic, so it's very difficult to translate word for word into English. Notice your example. Jesus es saluti nobis. It's a very good example of the double dative. Jesus is for the purpose of salvation in reference to us. <laughs> so Jesus is nobis for us for the purpose of salvation. In other words, you could translate it, Jesus serves as our salvation or Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is for us for the purpose of salvation. His purpose Salvation is Jesus' purpose in reference to us. This is the so-called double dative construction. Pretty rare in Latin, particularly in ecclesiastical Latin. Uh, a, a bit more common in classical Latin. It's actually considered by Roman stylists an elegant way to make an expression um, or make a sentence uh, with the verb to be usually and two datives, a dative of purpose and a dative of reference. So the challenge in translating these new datives is that you may have trouble at first recognizing them. Um, and so be on the lookout for a dative that's kind of in the sentence but doesn't have uh, a, a perfect, what seems to you to be a perfect grammatical explanation. For instance, normally we will expect a dative after a verb of giving or offering, I give a gift to you, right? Um, when there's no connection like that, you see a dative, um, look, look to think of as the, the dative of purpose, as in the first example, this man holds me for the purpose of hatred. When you see two datives and a verb to be, you're almost sure that that's going to be the so-called double dative. I love the double dative. I, I, I find it extremely uh, classy and elegant way of expressing something, particularly with the verb to be here. Jesus is for us, for, for, in reference to us, for the purpose of salvation. Jesus serves as our salvation. Jesus is our salvation. In translating, of course, there's no way to translate these idiomatic uses of the dative in a one-to-one -one correspondence in English. And, of course, this is something that uh, my great teachers used to say constantly, and I will repeat to you. When we translate from one language to another, we have to remember we're not translating words. We're translating ideas. Languages express themselves through words and through grammatical constructions. But it's only a computer if you want to go on Google Translate, you'll see the efforts that, that it makes in trying to translate word for word. You can't really do it. And these idiomatic expressions in the dative are perfect examples of why you can't translate word for word. It would be silly for us to write an English sentence that says something like, Jesus is for the purpose of salvation with reference to us. Nobody talks that way. But in Latin, it was perfectly acceptable and elegant Latin for a Roman 
to say, Jesus es saluti nobis. You see what I'm getting at? So you can't translate that word for word in a grammatical uh, connection. You have to translate it idiomatically as we would in English and realize that the, the native speaker of Latin would use a double dative in that way to express an idea that we would simply say, Jesus is our salvation. Okay, so that's basically all the new grammar that this chapter or this unit contains. Um, as I said, from now on, Collins will spend a lot of his time and space in each unit basically doing review. And in the rest of this unit, that's what we have here. Uh, section 151 on pages 255 and 256, we have the review of clauses, time, cause, and concession. Remember, these are circumstantial clauses that show us uh, under what circumstances the main clause is functioning. Now, um, any of these clauses expressing time, cause, condition, most of them are introduced by a subordinating conjunction. And these subordinating conjunctions uh, require either the indicative or the subjunctive for their verb moods, right? So in temporal clauses, that's the first type of clause here reviewed. We have time. We express time. Those are called temporal clauses. And they can be introduced by any number of subordinated conjunctions. You can see them in boldface there, section 151. Cum, ubi, ut, quando, simul atque or simul ac, postquam. Um, many of them take the indicative only, as it mentions there. Temporal clauses introduced by antiquam before priusquam before dum while as long as until donec while as long as until may take either indicative or subjunctive with no real difference in meaning. Remember, we talked the last time the temporal clauses when introduced by cum that emphasize the circumstances, those will take the subjunctive. Um, so uh, those are our main temporal clauses that are temporal uh, subordinating conjunctions that introduce temporal clauses. And again, this is all review. We've had all of these uh, conjunctions before. You know them. And um, for purposes of translation, it's not going to affect you much um, in terms of uh, indicative or subjunctive because when you see a temporal clause introduced by one of these subordinating conjunctions, you're just going to basically uh, translate it as when or as or uh, if it's dum or donec until or while. Uh, going down into our second category, causal clauses. Uh, again, we have a number of subordinating conjunctions that can be introduced, uh, that can introduce cla causal clauses. Causal clauses we translate since or because, right? So we have quia, quoniam, or quod, which means because. That they can take either the indicative one, sometimes the subjunctive. Uh, and as it says there in the note, the indicative is used to express the actual cause, the subjunctive either to express an actual or alleged cause. In other words, remember the indicative is that mood always which indicates a fact. We know a lot about it. We know it's factual. 
Um, the subjunctive moves us from the realm of fact often into the realm of subjectivity. Um, remember that cum ca causal clauses take the subjunctive only. Okay. And then our third kind of clause that um, we've talked about over the course of our units is the clause of concession. Concessive clauses. Um, concession in English is almost always expressed by the conjunction although. And in Latin, we have etsi, which means literally even if or although. Licet, which is actually first a verb, which means it is permitted, but then it comes uh, colloquially and particularly in later Latin to mean although. And quamquam, quam, uh, also, that means although. And those may take the indicative or the subjunctive without much distinction in meaning in ecclesiastical Latin. When we have a cum concessive clause, remember, we talked about those last unit. Although, cum meaning although, takes the subjunctive only. And remember, in a cum concessive clause, uh, or in any concessive clause, in the main clause, we often have the clue word tamen, nevertheless. Although something, 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 nevertheless, right? So we often in Latin have that tamen in the main clause, which gives us the clue that in fact this is a concessive clause. So for instance, in English we could say, although it is raining outside, nevertheless we will walk to the park, or still we will walk to the park. In Latin that would be tamen. And then finally, um, he mentions again the ablative absolute. And remember the ablative absolute is kind of a, a catch-all um, uh, subordinate clause. If you recall my definition, the ablative absolute is a clause expressing time, cause, condition, or concession, which is um, attendant upon, but grammatically divorced from the main uh, clause. And remember that the ablative absolute generally is made up of a noun or pronoun, the subject in the ablative, um, and then the verb expressed in the participial form, modifying that noun or, ad, or pronoun or so forth, whatever the subject of the ablative absolute is, um, in number, gender, and case, because a participle is an adjective. But remember that because participles are also verbs, they can introduce verbal, uh, uh, verbal grammatical uh, constructions following them. So for instance, we could have a participle in an ablative absolute that takes an object or some other uh, prepositional phrase or some such. We've had many, many examples of the ablative absolute. So this is just, this last part of the unit is simply a review of things we've had before. And as I said, going forward in the next few units before we complete our grammar book here, um, Collins will take occasion to review uses of the subjunctive, uses of the ablative, uses of the genitive, and so on and so forth. We'll be seeing that as we move along. So that basically covers all of your new material. Here in Unit 29, quite simply, the uh, indefinite pronouns and adjectives, which aren't at all difficult. Uh, Collins, in a sense, makes them a little bit more difficult than they are. Um, and, and then uh, these two uh, colloquial uses of the dative, which again are fairly rare, but will crop up occasionally. 
and then simply the review of your uh, uh, clauses of time, cause, and concession. Uh, on pages 256 and 257, you have, uh, again, a, a hearty list of new uh, vocabulary. I'm sure that the vocabulary is the thing that uh, keeps you working the most. Uh, it's difficult uh, when we're, uh, each unit is piling on uh, 15 or 20 new words. But again, as I've said before, uh, learning your vocabulary and learning new words is really the only way to stretch uh, your fluency of Latin. You're getting to the point now where there are not many new grammatical constructions. You've got just about all of them that are important. So um, the inclusion uh, or the expansion of your vocabulary is primary. And it's good always to read the vocabulary notes. Now for your homework, uh, let's look on pages 258 and following. Uh, on page 258, under the drills section, uh, he presents uh, several good and short examples of the indefinite pronouns and adjectives in number one and in number two, clauses of time, cause, concession. Let's do all of those, both number one and number two, okay? And then moving on to the exercises, the sentences on page 259 and following, um, get your pens ready. I will announce to you the numbers uh, of the sentences that I'd like you to do for our homework and that I will go over in our next uh, audio recording. So here they come. Ready? Number 1, 3, 6, 10, 14, 16, 17, 20, 23, 24, 25, 29, 34, 37, 40, and 46. I'll repeat those one more time. Sentences number, number 1, 3, 6, 10, 14, 16, 17, 20, 23, 24, 25, 29, 34, 37, 40, 46. And for our readings, let's do number 2 this time on page 262, the conditions for following Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. Now remember, uh, as we've said all along, it's always possible for you to go back and do uh, the numbers that we haven't indicated. There's plenty of practice. You see Collins is now up to 46 sentences there. Um, but I've picked out the ones that I think are most illustrative of... Uh, of the grammar that will be that we've covered, and are uh, the ones that are good and straightforward and give you the best practice. So that's what we'll be doing for this week. Um, that concludes our unit. Uh, as I said, not much new, um, but uh, always chance to review everything that you've done before, and um, the sentences are getting a little bit longer and more complicated, and almost all of them now come directly from Scripture, which is really nice because it shows you that with your knowledge of Latin now at this point, you can read most all of the sacred Scripture in Latin. Uh, and of course, this is our goal. So, 
without further ado, I will uh, conclude and say, uh, give you my best wishes for a good week, good studying Latin, and we'll talk to you again uh, during the midweek when we review our homework. Have a great day. Bye-bye.